Welcome to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I am currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rickabenny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina. I'm on the CLEAR Board of Directors as well as the current chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee with CLEAR. First, I want to welcome back our frequent listeners. To our new listeners, uh, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. Our podcast is a chance for you to hear about the latest and greatest in our community. Today's topic is the newly released State Regulatory Structures Report. I'm joined by some of the individuals who worked on this project, Iris Hensey um, and Suzanne Holtine with the, the National Conference of State Legislatures, our own Stephanie Thompson with CLEAR, and Corey Everett, Regulatory Consultant. We're glad to have you guys with us today. Thanks, Line. We're glad to be here. And again, thank you also for our listeners for joining us. Um, so NCSL has just recently released the State Regulatory Structures Report, and I understand it was part of the larger Occupational Licensing Consortium project. So I guess to start us off, Iris and Suzanne, um, either one of you, uh, can you give me a brief introduction to NCSL as well as kind of a brief background on the Occupational Licensing Consortium project that you guys have been working on for the last couple of years? Yes, of course. This is Suzanne and NCSL, or the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, we're a bipartisan organization serving legislators and legislative staff in all 50 states. Uh, we provide research, technical assistance, and professional development opportunities uh, for our members um, from across the U.S. So in 2017, we were awarded funding from the U.S. Department of Labor's Employment and Training Administration to study occupational licensing policy and best practices in the states, as well as to, to convene a consortium of states to really work on this topic. Uh, in recent years, there's definitely been an increased interest in occupational licensing in not only its growth as a major labor market institution, but also in what its uh, prevalence means for workers and state econ um, economies. So academics and think tanks, as well as, of course, our state policymakers have begun to take a lot more of an active role in critically assessing the costs and benefits of licensing policy in their own states, as well as the functions and mechanisms of their licensing systems. Well, great, thanks for that introduction. I guess, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about your work with the consortium states and how, I guess, questions about regulatory structures began to even pop up? Yeah, so in working with our consortium states, we really did a lot of baseline policy research and compiled as much information on state occupational licensing policy and practice as possible in our various publications, our databases, and then other resources such as blogs or, or magazine articles. And we began working with a group of 11 original states in 2017. Uh, each consortium state team was made up of a diverse stakeholder group in state government, including legislators, governor's office officials, regulators, board representatives, and others, depending on the state. Um, each state's team was unique in its composition, as well as in its background knowledge on occupational licensing and regulatory policy. 
Um, at first, there was a lot of level setting and education that we did explaining our own research to the teams, uh, connecting them with national experts and having them hear from one another as well as other states outside of our group. In 2018, we were able to add some additional states from some additional funding from the US Department of Labor, and that brought our total number up to 16 states working in our consortium. At that point, our state teams had a solid understanding of the landscape of licensing policy in their states and began to really want to compare their own experiences to those of other states. We help them do this by providing a number of resources, including some of our databases, which allowed them to compare minimum licensing requirement data in their state uh, to other states, as well as our legislative database, where they could see what types of occupational licensing legislation was being considered in other states. Um, but we also continued to receive a lot of questions from our state teams interested in learning more about how their state's regulatory system compares to those of the neighboring states or a state from across the country that they've heard is doing some really innovative things. Um, state policymakers really always want to hear what their colleagues from other states are working on. And it's true what they say about states being the laboratories of democracy where new and innovative approaches are being tried out. So, Obviously, you have about 16 states. Were you also hearing from states that were outside of the consortium? Hey, yeah, this is Iris, and I'll go ahead and take this question. Um, that's definitely right. At NCSL, we really work with legislators from all 50 states. So we were receiving questions and requests from other policymakers across the country who were also looking at their own approach to occupational licensing and wanting more information. Again, state legislators really benefit from learning about how their colleagues in other states are approaching the issue. And we had a lot of that comparative data to offer them. But something we hadn't been able to compile was the regulatory model specific data. We considered what resources and expertise gathering that data would require. And we realized that we really needed to partner with an organization like CLEAR to be able to provide this kind of information to our legislators and legislative staff. Well, I certainly understand that, you know, from my my side of, of things with CLEAR, but I guess for our, our listeners, uh, why was partnering with CLEAR on this resource a kind of a natural fit for, for NCSL? Uh, yeah, so we've had the opportunity to partner with CLEAR throughout our occupational licensing project and have really valued the regulatory expertise CLEAR brings to the table. Uh, so we immediately knew that CLEAR would be the best organization for us to partner with, given their vast and active membership, that we knew would be responsive to participating in a survey and telling us about the intricacies of their state's regulatory model. Justin is going to talk a lot more about the survey and research coming up, but we're really happy with how the resource turned out. I think that it will be a super helpful resource for legislators and other state policymakers who want to compare their state's regulatory structure other states, or even who just want to learn more about how their own state is approaching these issues. Well, that's great. Well, uh, this is quite a, a treat for me. I know Stephanie is usually on the on the back side of things, but we actually get to hear from her today. So, Stephanie, let me turn to you. Um, you know, with Clear and and maybe about some of the data coming out of this project. 
I guess, can you talk a little bit more about the survey questions and the response rate? Well, sure. Thanks. Um, I think first we'd like to thank NCSL for inviting CLEAR to be part of this project. And then importantly, CLEAR thanks all of those who responded to the survey. We had 161 responses from 45 states and the District of Columbia. And in the survey, respondents were asked to indicate which of five regulatory models best represented the model in use by their organization. Respondents were either responding on behalf of a single autonomous board, a single board under a central agency, or a central agency itself. And the five models that were presented in the survey are described in the CLEAR publication, Questions a Legislator Should Ask. So I'll just give kind of a brief overview of those. Um, model A is considered fully autonomous or independent meaning that they have their own staff and handle their own finances, they set policies, they set qualifications for licensing and oversee administration of licensing exams, and they handle complaints and discipline. Model B is autonomous, but with a central agency responsible for basic housekeeping functions. So the board makes decisions on policy, standards, exams, discipline, and staff. But a central agency may, for example, provide office space, collect fees, and issue the licenses. Moving to Model C, Boards maintain decision-making authority in many areas, but a central agency has increasing responsibility beyond housekeeping to include some control over budget, personnel, and investigations. Model D shifts into a central agency with the decision-making authority on all substantive matters, with the individual boards being delegated responsibility, perhaps for examinations, recommending standards, and recommending disciplinary sanctions, with the central agency able to review those decisions. And then in Model E, the central agency has final decision-making authority. And while boards may exist, they serve only in an advisory capacity. So those are the models that survey participants were selecting from. Gotcha. And, and I know that regulatory structures can vary quite differently, uh, you know, or quite a lot between the, all the different states. Did most states indicate that they had used only one of the models or did a lot of the states seem to have more than one model in place? Kind of where did that kind of fall out? Well, responses from 20 of the jurisdictions did indicate that only one single model was in use. So of those 20 single model jurisdictions, Model C was most frequently identified. And that is a model where decision-making authority lies with the individual boards and operational authority lies with a central agency. Of the remaining responses, uh, 15 jurisdictions indicated the use of two different models in their jurisdiction, and then the remaining 11 jurisdictions indicated the use of three or more different models. Oh, wow. So that data close shows quite a, a range of models um, in use across jurisdictions and even within the jurisdictions. So more than half the states had multiple models in place. That's interesting. Were you able to filter the data down even further? Right. So for those states indicating multiple models, we wanted to take a closer look and see if it was actually very different models in that state or if it was sort of variations on a theme. So we took a look at the models, not with distinct lines separating A, B, C, D, and E, but instead kind of considering what elements of the models were actually similar. So when you look at models A, B, and C, the common element is that the ultimate decision-making authority on all substantive matters lies with the individual board. 
With models D and E, that ultimate decision-making authority is with the central agency. So decision-making authority was one element that we used to further categorize the states, putting states with models A, B, or C into one group and states with models D or E into another group. So I guess in the end, what do the numbers look like when, when categorizing these models this way? So when grouping the states according to where decision-making authority lies, the numbers do break out a little bit differently. 16 of the 46 jurisdictions, or 35%, indicated a mix of models in their jurisdiction. So they were saying that some individual boards had decision-making authority, while others in that jurisdiction were governed by a central agency. But 30 jurisdictions, or 65%, indicated that the individual boards within their jurisdiction followed a consistent pattern for where decision-making authority lies. So more specifically, 26 of the jurisdictions reported that all of their boards have an autonomous model of decision-making in place, and four of the jurisdictions indicated that all of their boards have a central agency model of decision-making in place. So it looks like um, another element of the models has to deal with um, who handles the administrative and operational functions. Uh, you mentioned that earlier. Did you take a look at the data from that perspective? Uh, yes, in Model A, it's the autonomous board that has responsibility for all operational functions. And then in Models B, C, D, and E, a central agency has responsibility for increasing amounts of operational functions. So those operational functions that we're talking about um, range from providing office space, answering routine inquiries, collecting fees, actually issuing the licenses and renewals, and maintaining a listing of licensed individuals. And they may extend to such functions as budgeting, hiring staff, maintaining records, handling complaints, and conducting investigations. So looking at it that way, 14 of the 46 jurisdictions, or 30%, reported a mix, meaning that their jurisdiction includes both boards with autonomous operational authority and boards with central agency operational authority. But 70%, or 32 jurisdictions, indicated that the individual boards within their jurisdiction followed a consistent pattern of operational authority. So specifically, six of the jurisdictions reported that all of their boards have an autonomous model in place, and 26 of the jurisdictions indicated that all of their boards have a central agency model in place for administrative and operational functions. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of interesting how the breakdowns differ based on those, those two key elements of the model. Um, what about the combination of decision-making and operational authority? I mean, how, how do the states fall in, in, in that regard? Right. Um, there's an interesting chart in the report that shows those various combinations. So the largest number of jurisdictions, 15, indicated autonomous decision-making authority and centralized operations. Then we had nine jurisdictions with a mixed model for decision-making and a mixed model for operations. Um, seven of the jurisdictions had a mixed model for decision-making and a centralized model for operations. And five jurisdictions were a mixed model for operations, but with autonomous decision-making. Six of the jurisdictions indicated that they had both autonomous decision-making and autonomous operations, while four of the jurisdictions reported centralized decision-making and centralized operations. 
so, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure there's pros and cons uh, that, you know, easily can be pointed out um, to each of these different ways of, of addressing this. I guess in reviewing the report, um, I think one of the most interesting things that, that stood out was how uh, respondents talk about either benefits or, or challenges of the model they use. So I guess what themes seems to emerge when respondents wrote about the benefits and challenges? Well, across all respondents and all models that were in place, responses did seem to fall under several themes. Um, so those themes were efficiency, funding and budget, decision-making authority, streamlining and standardization, communication and collaboration, oversight, and political authority. And it's interesting how the type of model really seemed to influence the nature of the comments. So, for example, um, under the efficiency theme, respondents implementing models with autonomous decision-making authority more frequently described benefits relating to efficiency, such as quicker, more efficient, and more direct and personal customer service, as well as ease and flexibility to make changes and be responsive to the needs of the industry and the public. Um, respondents implementing models with centralized operations somewhat more frequently described challenges related to efficiency. So they talked about the lack of expediency, turnover and centralized staff, and lack of a staff dedicated to their specific boards. Uh, when respondents were describing the benefits related to funding and budget, those with fully autonomous boards noted control of budget, and those with centralized operations noted cost savings as a benefit. When respondents were describing uh, decision-making authority as a benefit, those were predominantly boards, not surprisingly, with autonomous decision-making authority. Um, and they talked about things about having control of their own destiny, um, having the latitude to carry out their mission, and having profession-specific regulation that allows for subject matter experts with a deeper knowledge of the profession. Looking at some of the other themes under the streamlining and standardization theme, respondents with centralized operation models talked about challenges such as restrictive state policies and that one size does not fit all. And they also noted a lack of coordination and consistency between boards. Um, finally, respondents commenting on communication and collaboration, either as a benefit or as a challenge, were predominantly those states implementing models with centralized operations. So as a benefit, they noted that their model facilitates communication and access to data and idea sharing amongst the boards, but they also talked about misunderstandings related to functions, purpose, and limits of authority as some challenges. So it was interesting to hear those comments comments from the people who are working under these different models. And I think that those open responses about the benefits and challenges are a really valuable part of the report. So again, clear thanks our respondents for taking the time to share all of those detailed comments. Yeah, it, it really sounds like there's a, a lot of great information in the, in the report. And I do hope our listeners can to take an opportunity to, to actually read it. Um, Let's now turn to one of my dear friends, Corey. I know you've been a part of, of CLEAR's work with, with several states on regulatory reform projects. Um, could you provide, I guess, some maybe context on how this report fits into the overall regulatory landscape in the U.S. today? 
Yeah, Lyon, thank you for that question and for having me today. Um, I also want to thank NCSL and CLEAR for their work to assemble this resource. I think it is both timely and highly valuable, especially in today's regulatory landscape. Um, so as Iris and Suzanne kind of already described, there is this growing interest in occupational licensing, especially as states consider the best framework with which to carry out those duties. The regulatory landscaping in the United States really is punctuated by two major initiatives right now. The first, Iris and Suzanne already mentioned, namely that occupational licensing is acknowledged as a major labor market institution. There is a growing body of evidence that considers some of the unintended consequences of state licensing policies. Uh, many academics point to the burgeoning of professional licensing over the last 50 years, and that's prompted a more collective kind of cost-benefit analysis across and within states. Um, also, as pointed out earlier, a major part of this analysis considers the function um, and mechanisms of licensing. One strategy that policymakers have considered is a restructuring of occupational licensing boards and agencies to address items related to cost, to the speed of licensing, uh, streamlining operations, leveraging economies of scale, uh, standardization across multiple professions, uh, coordination, communication, and responsiveness, right, to name a few that Stephanie highlighted earlier. So regulatory structure is an important lever as states kind of calibrate their licensing systems. The second initiative really addresses anti-competitive conduct and the, and the Supreme Court decision in the matter of the Federal Trade Commission um, and North Carolina Dental. So the decision with which many of the regulatory world are already familiar drove right at the heart of regulatory structure by considering the balance of decision-making authority. Occupational licensing in the United States leverages a unique form of government that requires a high level of coordination between the state or state employees and private market experts, i.e. licensees. So we talk about licensing being a form of self-government in which the licensees themselves play a primary role in regulating the occupation. But really this report demonstrates that it's much more nuanced than that. Stephanie outlined the five different regulatory models and each of them grapple with how authority for both decisions and operations are vested. But it really goes far beyond that. I often like to quote Adam Parfit, Clear's executive director, who once in a speaking engagement referenced the 50 different experiments in the United States of how to structure occupational licensing. And this report is so helpful as it kind of provides a peek under the hood as these systems evolve and respond to the pressures, the demands and the expectations of our economy and society. Well, I appreciate that perspective. Um, Iris, you know, kind of told us a little bit about the the initiatives for the report and obviously Stephanie discussed some of its findings. I, could you tell us maybe more about what policymakers could take away from this report? Yeah, first and foremost, the diversity of responses to the survey demonstrates that the, you know, quote unquote, ideal regulatory model is state specific. There is no silver bullet here and perhaps the best policy is just consider the regulatory landscape, the societal values and economic environment of a particular state. You know, as Stephanie mentioned, a lot of states don't use a single model. We're seeing a blending of these approaches um, using two or three or, or maybe more models all in a single area. If we do consider the responses in the context of the regulatory reform efforts in the United States, a few considerations do stand out. Um, I think the first is, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? 
If you're looking at anti-competitive conduct concerns, the survey responses would seem to point to greater oversight by the state, meaning more of that Model D or Model E may offer some advantages to you. Um, I do want to caution this is not legal advice. This is not the only strategy to address concerns about the appearance or the reality of anti-competitive conduct. Uh, the other is, you know, looking at the fiscal footprint and the cost of operating occupational licensing. Um, if that's a concern that a Model C structure um, that centralizes many of those administrative functions but preserves market expertise and decisions might be the uh, interesting way to go. Uh, improved customer service, if that's a priority, then definitely Model A and Model B, we heard that very strongly from the respondents, um, where more autonomous uh, authorities provided without the influence of a centralized agency. Now, of course, you know, who wants just one of those things? Ideally, we want to accomplish all of those things, right? And I think the best guidance here is really for the, the individual stakeholders to dig in. Uh, what works in Arizona may not serve as a model for Washington. It's even more difficult, what works in New York City may not be a great model for Western New York. Um, the work of the Occupational Licensing Consortium facilitated by NCSL underscores, I think, the importance and the value of this interdisciplinary approach. What we know from the emerging body of evidence regarding occupational licensing is that it is, that it is not a smaller and consequential matter. It has touch points to workforce policy, academic policies, healthcare, access to care, the justice system, and the economy. So policymakers may consider questions like, um, you know, how should decisions be made about the conduct that endangers consumers? Uh, how do we engage market expertise in those decisions? Should the model vary by industry? For example, sometimes we see healthcare professions utilize a different model than some of the more technical professions. What does operational authority look like in the state? This may speak to the fiscal processes or how the state manages performance among its different departments and divisions. Uh, who's most likely to succeed in the system? Who bears the cost? Who's excluded from the current licensing policies? These are questions that aren't easily answered and often policy decisions um, relate that relate to these questions fall on a spectrum. And deciding where your state should fall on that spectrum, I believe is best determined by local stakeholders. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, so I know COVID obviously um, has posed an unprecedented challenge for our society and our economy, um, let alone state budgets. I mean, we, we just, you know, today North Carolina moved into their uh, phase 2.5 um, just a couple hours ago. Um, but I guess how should readers of this report interpret its findings given the unprecedented time in which we find ourselves in now? Yeah, Lyon, I think that's a really great question, obviously a very timely one. Um, licensing boards have played an important part in the state responses to COVID. Uh, it's also not the first time or the first crisis that many occupational licensing boards have faced. Many of the policies that boards have implemented in response to COVID were incubated during responses to natural disasters. So crisis management is not unfamiliar to many licensing boards and several already have disaster recovery plans in place. They understand how to flex to unprecedented circumstances to preserve consumer protections while responding to the most important crisis priorities. During COVID, many of those priorities related to access to care, ensuring there is an adequate workforce to respond to the crisis, 
providing guidance on matters related to consumer safety in light of public health protocols or helping to streamline and reduce costs to businesses as they're trying to reopen or just keep the doors open. So occupational licensing does have several touch points back to these initiatives. So what does regulatory structure have to do with COVID response? Uh, and, and I think regulatory structure speaks to the coordination of market expertise and public policy. Good crisis management demands quick decisions and alignment for effective response. Uh, these are the types of considerations that may be identified ahead of time in a continuity of operations plan, but they are also germane to the state's regulatory structure. So COVID may present an opportunity to evaluate the state's regulatory structure and calibrate the communication channels, the information sharing, the decision making to support the overall needs of the state and its residents. Well, I, I want to thank you. Um, definitely some important considerations for licensing boards and, and policymakers. Um, well, before we close today, I do want to make sure that our, our listeners know where to find um, the report. Um, Iris, where is it? Yeah, so uh, the report is on our website, uh, which is at www.ncsl.org. Under the research tab on our homepage uh, on the labor and employment topic topic page, you'll see a link for the Occupational Licensing Project. There, you'll see a link to the Regulatory Structures Project, including the full report, a summary, and additional resources. There's also a link to the report from our project landing page, which is at www.ncsl.org slash state license. And it's available from a link on CLEAR's regulatory news blog and the Communities by CLEAR discussion forum. Perfect. Thank you. Well, I think it's been a, a great discussion. So I do want to thank you, Iris, Suzanne, Stephanie, and Corey, um, for your time and, and being part of this CLEAR podcast. Um, it's always wonderful to have the opportunity to talk about these issues and learn about what's happening in the field of occupational and professional licensing. So uh, thank you all for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. Thank you to our frequent listeners. Um, you know, you guys are, are, are why we keep coming back. If you're new to the Clear Podcast, please take a moment to subscribe. Um, it's available on Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment uh, in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to visit our website, of course, at www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming training programs and events. Finally, thanks to our staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson, um, one of our commenters today, but also our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking with you again very soon.